Father, as we look in this portion of your scripture this morning, make it real to each one of us in the way you want to, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. My dad loved to uh, tell puns and short, funny jokes. You know, the puns get old in a hurry, if you know anybody like this. Short, funny jokes, too. One of the, one of the short stories he told me as a young kid, <clears throat> more than once, I don't know why, was about the Missouri farmer and his mule. Do you guys know this story? The guy from the city goes to visit his farmer in the country. This, why Missouri? I have no idea, Bob, but there it is. It's a Missouri farmer. Goes out to visit him, and he's going to take his mule out and hitch him up to the wagon, and so he goes out to get the mule, and before he does, the guy's watching him, you know, do the work. He picks up a two-by-four. The farmer does and hits his mule square between the eyes. Have you heard this story? And his friend from the city is shocked, and he's like, what in the world are you doing? And the farmer says, well, first you've got to get his attention. You get it, guys? Before you work with the mule, you've got to get his attention. Why did my dad tell me that story repeatedly, Kent? I have no idea. No idea. This was the one I remembered, Stan, yeah. This is the one I remember. Too late for my dad. But, you know, if you're a parent, you know why this story makes sense. You tell your kids something, they forget five minutes later. You've got to get their attention. got to get their attention. The passage we're in this morning in John 21 is about Jesus getting a friend's attention. Because his friend needs to hear some things. Jesus has to say, and he's a little slow of hearing. And so Jesus needs to get his attention. Now, we are not starting in John 21, even though you guys are there already. Very impressive. We're actually going to get to John 21 through Luke 5. So if you want to, you can turn to Luke 5 and hold John 21 with your finger. Luke 5, you'll notice that Luke 5, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the beginning of his relationship with Peter, is very similar to a story in John 21. And it's as if Peter's life with Jesus is bookended by very similar stories, very similar situations. And in both of them, Jesus is using something Peter knows something about to get his attention because he needs to talk to him about something. In Luke 5, I won't read all of this, but to bring you up to speed, in Luke 5, Jesus has been talking to crowds at the Sea of Galilee. And to do so, he's been parked in his friend Peter's boat. So he's not crowded in. Crowds on the shore. Pete's, Jesus are in the boat and he's talking to them. Now, Clearly, Jesus knows, for whatever reason, whatever Peter needs to hear, he has not heard it yet. So when Jesus is done teaching the crowds, it's, it's his turn to do something with Peter. So he says, Pete, put your boat out. We're going to catch some fish. Peter's a professional fisherman, and he'd fished all night. And he tells Jesus politely, we didn't catch anything all night, but since you've said so, I'll do it anyway, meaning we're not going to catch anything now either. <clears throat> now, of course, if you know the story, their net is so filled with fish, the net's breaking. And the two little fishing boats they're out in, the boats are sinking from the catch of fish. And now, see this, Peter's the mule. The fish are the two by four. Peter's listening. Jesus has got his attention through this great catch of fish. Pete's face is slapped. The two by fours hit him, whatever. Now he's listening. And this is what he says. Peter says in Luke 5, 8. 
When Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet inside the boat and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. <clears throat> I don't know what Pete's issues are. He doesn't elucidate any specifics. Jesus knew there was some issue with Peter and his conscience. And he knew Pete's conscience hadn't been reached with whatever he'd already told the crowd. And now he's got his attention and Pete's conscience has been reached. And his response is, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Now, this is quite intentional on Jesus' part. He wanted to get Peter right here. And the earlier teaching hadn't done it. So Jesus says, don't fear, from now on you'll be catching men. Don't fear, from now on you'll be catching men. <clears throat> Excuse me. When they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Jesus wanted to get his attention, reach his conscience, so he could relieve him and then commission him. Jesus had plans for Peter, and Peter's not quite ready to hear what they are. He's not really paying attention yet. Jesus has to get his attention so he can relieve him of this sense of sinfulness, whatever it's attached to, so that he can commission him for service. This story in Luke gets Pete hooked up with Jesus. He leaves those nets. He leaves his boats behind so that he becomes this fisher of men with Jesus for the next three years. And that's what he's done. Left the boats, left the nets in Luke 5. For three years he's been with Jesus out there catching men. And this brings us to John 21 this morning. And you'll see how remarkably similar the two stories are. Now remember in John 20, the crucifixion, the resurrection has already taken place. Jesus has appeared after his resurrection to the disciples. And that's where we pick up in John 21, verses 1 through 17. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. We'd normally call this the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called the twin and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. They say to him, we'll also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And you guys know, while Jesus rose in the body, he was crucified in, so to speak. You get repeatedly these meetings post-resurrection where people see him and they don't know that's Jesus. Physically, there was some change in his appearance because his followers, people who knew him intimately, don't always recognize him, which we'd seen in John 20 already. So Jesus, whom they don't recognize yet, says to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved says to Peter, It's the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on because he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid, and fish placed on it, and bread. Jesus says to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus says to them, 
come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus comes and takes the bread and gives to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And again, this is the third time for the group of disciples. We know at least from Luke 24, he's appeared to two guys on the road to Emmaus and to Peter separately, but third time for the group of disciples. So when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs or take care of my little lambs. He says to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says to him, shepherd my sheep or oversee a shepherd over the big flock shepherd my sheep he says to him the third time simon son of john do you love me peter was grieved because he said to him the third time do you love me and he said to him lord you know all things you know that i love you jesus says to him tend my sheep the disciples had moved to get to our story here, they'd moved from down in Jerusalem and Judah in the south, they're back up at the Sea of Galilee, and probably because in Matthew 26, 32, actually a passage we'll look at in just a second, Jesus had told them after he rose, he'd meet them back in Galilee. So we assume they've seen him post-resurrection in Jerusalem, and maybe we don't know timetable here for sure, but maybe some days have gone by, they haven't seen him, and they think, he told us Galilee, we'll head up there. And while they're there, Jesus hasn't appeared, and they're back in their old digs, and there's the lake, and there are their boats, and Pete gets the bright idea, gosh, let's do something, let's go fishing. And so the other guys say, us too, us too, and that's what they do, they head out. Now, just like Luke 5, they fished all night, which was typically when they would fish, they'd sell fresh fish at the market the next day. They fished all night, and they don't catch a thing, just like Luke 5. And Jesus now uses this miraculous catch a second time in Peter's life, to get their attention. It's when the nets are full that John says, oh, I know who that is on the shore now, the guy who knows how to get the fish when nobody else can. That's the Lord. He's got their attention again. When Jesus had talked to Peter in Luke 5, you remember he relieves his conscience. I'm a sinful man, Lord. There's something on my conscience between God and me. And then Jesus says, hey, don't fear. That's not going to keep you. I'm making you a fisherman of men. That was the reason Jesus got his attention with that catch of fish. Now he's doing the same thing here. Peter, in this passage, needs to be restored, which is why you see the three questions in verses 15 through 17. Why does Jesus ask Peter three times if he loves him? And of course, this is the reason. Peter, if you remember, we'll look at two passages here. Peter made some promises to Jesus, made some declarations that he'd then fallen away from. So in John 13, the night Jesus was betrayed, the night of the Last Supper, in John 13, starting at verse 36, Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow later. Pete says to him, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. In other words, nothing would keep me from following you, Jesus, even to die. I'm ready. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Not only will you deny me, Pete, it won't take very long. It'll be tonight. 
Matthew 26, starting at verse 31, is even more pointed. Jesus says to them, you'll all fall away because of me this night. You're all going to desert or forsake me or fall away from me this night. Because it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep, you're going to be scattered tonight. After I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. That's again why we assume they're back at the lake now. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, Lord, everyone else might, but not me. You and me, we're going all the way. Everyone else may fall away. And this is why probably the first question, do you love me more than these, probably means, Pete, do you love me more than everyone else loves me? Because he says here in Matthew 26, Lord, everyone else might fall away, but not me. I love you more. I'm more dedicated than anyone else here. They may fall away. I will never fall away. Jesus says to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter says to him, now God who can't lie has just told him you're going to fall away. But Pete, it's, it's not getting through. The two by four is not struck yet. He's not really hearing. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Lord, you're wrong. You can't be wrong, but you are here because I'm with you to the end. And of course, then what happens? You know, this is just hours later than we've read in John 20. Peter's in the court of the high priest, and what does he do? Three times. Fear gets a hold of him. Jesus isn't with him, not at his side. He's in the camp of the enemy, as it were. The night's grown cold. His courage has grown cold. He's asked by people who have no political or military ability to harm him. The girl who lets him into the courtyard, the servant asks him, aren't you with him? No, I'm not. Three times he's asked, three times he denies, at least one with cussing. And by the way, Luke tells us, more pointed yet, when Peter denies Jesus the third time, Jesus is watching him. It says their eyes meet across the courtyard. So the third denial, when Peter says it and makes it with swearing or with oath, Jesus sees and hears and Pete knows. And these bold promises he made to Jesus just hours earlier, he's just reneged on and Jesus is looking at him as he does. Have you guys ever been caught in the act at something? You know, if you fail and no one sees, your shame level's here. If you fail and someone sees you, your shame level's here. So you can imagine how Peter felt. And it says in the, in the context of, of the occasion, you know, he left with weeping. He's crushed. He thought he was good to go and he wasn't. He didn't know that. Jesus did. He fails and Jesus is there to see it and to hear it. There's an issue. Peter's got not a chip on his shoulder. Peter's got an issue on his conscience. He's got something that needs to be resolved. You can imagine if you're Peter and Jesus has risen from the dead. You didn't know it was coming, but there it is. And now he's back. And you're back and you see him. What are you thinking about? You're thinking about the promises you made and your failure. And now Jesus is back, but you know what? You're a little constrained in your relationship because your conscience isn't clear. Because for you, there's this lingering doubt. I told the Lord I loved him and I blew it and I blew it big time. And not once and not twice, three times. And he heard me and he saw me. You know, Pete's world is not only upside down like the other disciples because Jesus had died and they didn't see that coming. 
He has this additional weight on his shoulders that Jesus wants to relieve him of, but it's this doubt, is there any hope? Can I be restored? What's my relationship to the Lord now? He's risen and that's great, but I still feel like the prodigal. I still feel like the odd man out. The Lord's good to go, but I'm not sure I'm good to go. Three times then at this meeting, he's got his attention, caught the fish. We know it's Jesus again. Three times he asks him the same question, do you love me? Because Peter had denied knowing him three times. Now, I love this. Each question, each time Jesus asks him, do you love me? Peter's convicted. And this is fine because he'd made a boast and a promise and he didn't fulfill it. This is fine. He's convicted. And then each confession of Peter's love brings the knowledge of forgiveness because with each confession of his love, Jesus says, I'm entrusting you with the responsibility of my flock, of my people, the things I care most about. Three denials, three questions, and with each question, there's restoration. So what Jesus was after in getting Pete's attention in John 21, just like Luke 5, Peter's got a conscience issue. It's got to be resolved so that Jesus can commission him and get him going in the direction he wants him going because he's got things for people to do, things for Peter to do. Think about this. Not long from now, from this, the story that takes place here in John 21, not many days from now, on Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit comes down, the church is born, and where's Peter? Peter is the one preaching to the crowds in Jerusalem when 2,000 people believe that first Sunday and are saved and are brought into the church. Who does that? That's Peter. In other words, this was Jesus' plan for Peter. Pete doesn't know that, but Jesus does. And then think about this too. John 8, when God gives the Holy Spirit to the Samaritans, you remember all the Christians are Jews. Jews don't associate with Samaritans, half-Jews or Gentiles. And Jesus had told Peter, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. And, and by the way, I don't think this is more complicated than this. It's Peter that Jesus uses to bring the Jews to faith, the Samaritans to faith, and the Gentiles to faith. So in Acts 8, it's Peter through whom the Holy Spirit is given to the Samaritans. The key, if you will, to the Samaritan world is unlocked by Peter when he goes up and they get the Holy Spirit. They believe, but they didn't get the Spirit. It's Peter in Acts 10 who brings the gospel to the Gentiles through Cornelius. It's Peter in Acts 11 who defends Gentiles coming into the household of faith without becoming Jews to the Christian Jews in Jerusalem. And then later, it's Peter who gives us the legacy of 1st and 2nd Peter, those epistles that we read to this day. So you can see the point is this. Jesus has plans for Peter. Peter doesn't know that. And he doesn't know if he's got plans what they are. But Pete can't continue until he's good to go between he and the Lord. So Jesus gets his attention, relieves his conscience, so that he can restore him and commission him to the work he's planned for him. Also remember this. Peter made those boasts in front of all the disciples. And can you imagine this? If you're in a group and one of your number says to Jesus, I love you more than all those guys do. Because they're okay, but I'm better. You know, I love, them more, love you more. If you're one of those other guys, what might you be feeling towards Peter too? 
you might be thinking, hit the can, bud. Go back to the nets and the boats. You're done. You're washed up. You made these bold claims. You're always impetuous. You're always running ahead without thinking. You got your comeuppance. You're done. Your history. He makes the promises in front of the disciples and he's restored in front of the disciples so that any lingering doubt they had about Peter's leadership or any lingering doubt they might have had about trusting Peter or following him in the future, those are resolved here too because Pete's not restored privately. He's restored before the guys he failed with. They heard the promises. They knew the failure. The restoration takes place in their presence too. So Jesus is saying to Peter, you're good to go and I've got plans for you. But he's also doing it in front of the other disciples so they know Peter's restored. If he's restored to Christ, he's restored. You guys shouldn't have issues with him anymore either. Turning a corner here too, look at the role that love plays in this. You know love's kind of a term depending on how you use it. You throw it around. Sometimes I'm even a little uncomfortable saying it. It sounds a little mushy, but there it is. Look at the role love plays in this passage and in Peter's story. Let me start by reading a brief excerpt out of Leon Morris's commentary on John, this passage. He says this, Three times he had denied his Lord. Now he has three times affirmed his love for him, and three times he has been commissioned to care for the flock. This must have had the effect of a demonstration that whatever had been the mistakes of the past, Jesus was restoring Peter to a place of trust. It is further worth noting that the one thing about which Jesus questioned Peter prior to commissioning him to tend the flock was love. This is the basic qualification for Christian service. Other qualities may be desirable and are, but love is completely indispensable. I find this interesting. I think this is telling. He doesn't ask Peter a number of other things. The one thing he asks to restore him in his relationship and then commission him, and think about this, commission him to take care of what Jesus prizes most, which is people, his flock. The one thing he asks him is, do you love me? And and I understand this means this. Jesus is saying, if you love me, I can trust you with what I value. Peter, if you love me, I can give you the highest responsibility knowing you'll discharge it because love is the key motivation that you can't serve me without. You may know, and you may be, a person with great intellect, academic acumen, maybe skills, whatever. If you don't have love, do you remember the language of 1 Corinthians 13? What does Paul say there? You're noisy. You're gongs. But in the end, you're useless. But if you have love, Paul says there, you've got everything. And Jesus commissions Peter to care for what he cares for most because Peter has said, Lord, I love you. And if you have any aspiration to serve Christ, any aspiration to serve Christ, you can't do it apart from the motive of love. And this goes actually two ways. One, it means you love Christ. This starts with, Peter, do you love me? It's love for Christ that is preeminently the motivation you and I are called to have if we're going to serve him on the earth. By the way, if you serve others for any other motivation, you'll find that they will fall, they fall by the wayside. Uh, 
if you want to serve others because it makes you feel important, boy, <laughs> what a mistake. If you want to serve others because you think it gives you some social standing, I'll tell you, it's not worth whatever standing you get. You, you can serve for numerous other motivations and they'll all fall by the wayside because they won't sustain you over time. Love is the motivation that will sustain you. Sometimes the only thing that will keep you honoring Christ is because you love Christ, because you'll feel like everybody around you is blowing it and blaming it on you. And if you were, if you were operating out of any other motive, you'd just quit serving. But if your motive for service is because you love Christ, you can go to the end. Love for Christ will take you to the end of the road. Other things won't. And then you've got to love what Christ loves, and that's people. So Jesus commissions Peter on no other foundation than Peter loved Jesus. And therefore Jesus says, I can commission you to care for what I care about because you love me. You're good to go. This is telling. This is the bottom line. Love is what gets us there. Love is the motive Jesus is looking for. Do you remember in Luke 7, there was a woman who came up to Jesus, and this was in the house of a Pharisee, I think a Pharisee, and she's a known sinner. And they're, they're like, boy, if he knew anything, he'd know what kind of a woman that is. And Jesus says this, Luke 7, 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, I know she's got a sin issue, and I know there's lots of sins. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Why? She loved much. And by the way, we don't get forgiveness of sins because we love. She loved Jesus. She was committed. She believed in Jesus. He said, he who is forgiven little loves little. Peter's like this woman. Peter feels like he's been forgiven much. So now Peter gets it. Peter loves much. Why? Because he's been forgiven. He feels that weight removed. He feels the benefit of Christ's love and forgiveness. He gets it. Peter's like this gal. He was forgiven much, and Peter loves much. Now, Peter's courage failed, but love remained. Your courage and my courage, your wisdom and my wisdom, whatever else we rely on at times, they're going to fail us. But love remains, and that's enough motive to serve Christ, and it's enough motive for Christ to entrust you and I with the things he cares about. None of this, of course, means that Peter didn't grow as a leader, and he needed to, and whatever you and I bring to the plate. Love is the foundation of service. It doesn't mean we stay there. We need to grow and become better at all the things that we can grow in, but love is the foundation. Think of this too. I'm blown away by the fact that this is the end of John's gospel, John 21. Some people will tell you this is an appendage. I don't think it is. Uh, John's gospel, chapter one, starts with a uh, forward, ends with an epilogue, makes sense. It, I don't think it's an appendage. But you remember in the end of chapter 20, John told us why he wrote the gospel. could have ended right there. I've written so that you can believe in Jesus, believing you'll have life in his name. That's why he wrote it. And yet he, he writes another chapter all about Peter. John 21 is about Peter and Jesus' interaction with him. I love this. Because even in the gospel where Jesus is saying, I'm concerned about making sure people come into relationship with me, the gospel closes with Jesus saying, and by the way, I'm concerned about those who've already come. Because the whole last chapter is about Peter. And we'll close the next time with the end of John 21. It's about Peter too. <clears throat> it's also a reminder of this. 
You and I repent, we change our thinking about our sin and our condition before God when we believe in Jesus and get saved. We've got a sin issue, got to be dealt with through Christ, we believe, we get saved. Jesus commissions us, if you will, brings us into that relationship with Him. But you know what? That happens more than once. When you believe and get saved, that's the difference between life and death. Pretty good start. But as you and I go on, just like Peter, you're going to find that you have conscience issues. And you've got sin issues. That Jesus taps you by catching some fish, taps you harder with the two by four, whatever. Because you've got an issue that he wants to resolve, not so that he can rub your face in some shameful way in the way you've blown it, but because he wants to restore you so you can get on with the business of life that he has for you. This is a good thing. If you're sitting here this morning and you think, I'm, I'm one who's blown it. I'm like Peter. I've blown it and I wonder if life can ever be the same. Life's not the same, but life's better. And remember Pete. Peter's a great illustration. Peter blew it. He really blew it. Big time. In his mind and in the minds of others. And Peter is restored and recommissioned again by Christ. Remember Peter. Also remember in the end it's love that counts. You and I, we are going to fail in numerous ways. James says, all of us sin in a multitude of ways. There's no one here who doesn't sin. We sin. There's always restoration and forgiveness issues. So just figure, count on it. Deal with it. Count on it. And then go on. If you're here this morning and you think, you know, I'm doing pretty good right now. Yes, I've blown it in the past, but right now I'm doing pretty good. But I know some people who've blown it recently. You know, you've got to be careful. Got to be careful. You want to extend to others when they fail the same kind of kindness and grace and forgiveness that Jesus extends to Peter here and that no doubt you and I would like to receive when we fail. Don't be too quick to write someone off because they failed. Because Peter's an illustration, Jesus wasn't done with them. His greatest works were yet to come. Now there are times, this, we are not looking at rose-colored glasses or through rose-colored glasses. Here. There are times, there are sins that cut Christians off from fellowship. There are times God judges Christians with death. 1 Corinthians 11 and John 5. Absolutely, it happens. These aren't rose-colored glasses that we're saying there's always restoration. There isn't. But on our side of it, don't be too quick to write somebody off because you think God's done with them. When we interact with someone, <clears throat> excuse me, who's blown it, we do so with Jesus' motive, which is restoration. We can't restore them ourselves, but we can be Jesus' agents to call them back to that relationship with Him and with the church doesn't always happen, but don't be too quick to write those folks off. <clears throat> Let me close with this. I was thinking about this last night. The next time you read the Gospel of Mark, think about Peter and Peter's restoration. And then think about Mark and Mark's restoration. Do you know why? We understand through at least one church father that the Gospel of Mark is really Peter's story. Did you know that? The Gospel of Mark is Peter's story that John Mark recorded. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're reading the fruits of a guy who blew it and was restored. And by the way, the guy who recorded it, Peter's story, Mark, you know, he had a failure issue too. Do you remember? We assume this is the same John Mark who fled 
Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey in Acts 13. Put his tail between his legs, headed home. In fact, later when Barnabas wants to call John Mark back on another trip, Paul says, no way. You can't trust the guy. He blew it. He checked out when we needed him, and I'm not bringing him back now. But you know what? The Scripture doesn't record it, but John Mark was restored. How do I know? Because he's with Peter in 1 Peter 5. By the way, he's with Paul in prison in Colossians 4. And at the end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy 4, he asks for Mark to come join him because he's so useful. So when you read the Gospel of Mark, you're reading the fruit, the ministry, if you will, of a guy who failed, told to a guy who failed. And both of them were restored. You know, I think if there's hope for Peter and Mark, there's probably hope for most of us too. Both of them should be a reminder that the fact that you fail doesn't mean God's done with you. God gets our attention so that he can cleanse our conscience, so that we can get right with him, so that we can get back on the track for the things he intends for us in this life. If you feel that tap on your forehead, or if you see that catch of fish, whatever it is, you know, God speaks in, a new, in numerous ways. He might get your attention, who knows how. But the little light goes on, you're like, oh, that's God. He must want my attention. Pay attention to what he's saying, because it's for good. It's to restore you. It's to bring you back in. And like Peter and Mark, be willing to get back in the saddle and serve again, and be useful to Christ again. Because John reminds us at the end of this gospel that Christians need forgiveness and restoration too. That his gospel tells people to believe in Christ initially, which is great, but it reminds us that once in his family, once you're a member of the household of faith, you'll need restoration and forgiveness too. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the reminder that when we have blown it and think life is over, when we have failed for the second and third and fourteenth and fifteenth time, there is hope because there's forgiveness and restoration by your grace. Father, thanks for guys like Peter that remind us that you're after life, that you didn't come to the world to judge the world, and you don't come into our life and tap us on the shoulder because you want to hit us with a sledgehammer, but because you want to relieve us of the weight of our sin and the things that keep us lagging behind the the life, the good life, the rich life you're calling us to. Lord, help us to pay attention when you're speaking to us to give you the things that hinder our life and our walk with you and to endeavor to serve you through love. In Jesus' name, amen.